1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Thomas Ate. Professor Ate is Professor of Diplomatic History at the University of East Anglia. He is without a doubt one of the leading diplomatic historians dealing with 19th and 20th century British and European diplomatic history. And today we are discussing his newest book, Statesman of Europe, A Life of Sir Edward Grey, published by Alan Lane. Welcome Professor Ate. Hello. Professor, why did you write this book?
1: Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think there are three reasons why I wrote this book. Um, One, I think, has to do with the challenge of writing a biography, which is a different intellectual uh, enterprise from writing straightforward history books. One has to ask different questions. One has to keep the subject of one's study in the foreground all the time. One has to try to present a a rounded picture of, uh, in this case, a man, Um, in his time, how he responded to events, how he tried to shape events. That's a very different um, kind of um, type of history uh, from straightforward political or foreign policy history or or indeed social history. So that was one reason. The other reason was that um, Edward Grace had a pretty bad press I think, in 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 recent years, uh, well, really in the last 70 years or 80 years even. Um, and the further I probed into the uh, origins of the First World War, the, the more it um, struck me that in fact, uh, Gray was a very experienced foreign minister uh, who handled um, international uh, questions uh, with great skill and indeed with great foresight and so i wanted to examine why it was that the if you like the revisionists the anti-grey revisionists um, have had the feel to themselves and i wanted to redress the balance a little bit and the third reason i uh, was quite simply a logistical one i had a sabbatical coming up and um, one, can, one is entitled to a sabbatical, but one doesn't always get it, so I had to show that I had a project ready uh, to go, and um, I thought, well, I have about two wheelbarrows full of notes which I will never put to any use uh, unless I write a biography of Edward Gray, and so that was the third reason.
2: Uh, did you or the publisher choose the title of the book?
1: I wished I could claim credit for the title, but I can't. It was, in fact, the publishers who chose the title, but I, I was very happy with it. It's a good title.
2: Um, is it, um, how shall I put it? Is it a little bit um, uh, inaccurate? If I may use uh, that particularly? maybe it's much more um, stronger term than I would like. In so far as gray, didn 't appear to have any of the sort of continental European interests of say Salisbury or Haldane or Balfour or even Gladstone never apparently at least until not after nineteen nineteen ever went to Europe and as per vanstar was a very insular individual who spoke worse French than churchill mm. um,
1: yes that that is sort of part of the uh, um, reputation that Gray uh, had acquired um, uh, in the 1930s and and later, Um, when you actually look at his intellectual interests, he's very aware of European culture. He reads German books, he reads French books. Uh, He's very interested, very moved by German music. Um, So this is not someone who is really insular in his cultural tastes and interests. As for his French, who can say? Um, I have seen French letters from him, and they were perfectly passable, I think. What his accent was like, who knows? Um, Of course, Van Sittard, like so many diplomats of the 1920s and 30s, prided himself on speaking French with a Parisian accent. Whether he did that, I don't know either. Um, I, I certainly know that, French, uh, that Salisbury spoke very poor French, um, and uh, Churchill, uh, Churchill's French was probably even worse than that. Um, and as for the, his travel um, uh, habits, um, Gray had been to India before he uh, became Foreign Secretary, He did go uh, fishing in Norway uh, every now and then, uh, as so many Victorians and Edwardians did. Um, And in the end, actually, does it matter whether a foreign minister uh, has spent time abroad? I don't think it really matters. Uh, There are other ways in which you can acquire a feel
2: for international
1: politics. Um, And it seems to me that Gray had that
2: feel. Point well taken. Uh, how much of an influence on Gray's character and outlook on life was his family?
1: Very influential, um, and here was especially his grandfather, Sir George Grey, um, the first baronet, um, who played a very significant role. George Grey was a leading Whig politician, liberal politician, if you like. Um, he was in the cabinet. Uh, and um, occupied very senior positions in the cabinet, including Home Secretary uh, under um, Lord John Russell and under uh, Palmerston. Um, And he really uh, shaped that whole Whiggish outlook that combined governmental competence administrative uh, efficiency with um a kind of reformist outlook george gray was also very religious um combining a sort of an early evangelical um anglican outlook with um an interest in social reforms and although edward gray was perhaps less overtly religious in his public pronouncements, he was nevertheless very strongly influenced by his grandfather. And it seems to me that he was something of a role model. And when you look at, uh, when you compare the the public persona of George Gray and the public persona of Edward Gray, they're very similar um, types of politician, Uh, very calm, very measured. They're not given to uh, great fights of oratory um their language is very measured um but they also have that it's very difficult to put a word on it and to 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 qualify it or quantify it in any way but they had this ability to command the trust and the confidence of their peers and um george gray had that uh and edward gray had that as well and that was in part the attraction which he had for um many late Victorian and Edwardian uh, politicians and and uh the, the, the wider public.
2: What did Gray get out of Oxford intellectually speaking?
1: <laughs> well, that's a very good question um because as you know uh of course um he only scraped um a third class degree in the end and he was rusticated uh, for incurable idleness at one point. Um, I think in the end, um, the intellectual stimulus uh, was, uh, uh, that, that really shaped his his uh, sense of uh, public duty, his outlook on uh, public affairs, the intellectual stimulus that, that shaped all of that was provided by Mandel Crichton, um, a great uh, historian, former fellow of Merton College, who was at that point um, the, the, the vicar of Imbleton, which is the village nearest to Faladon, which is the ancestral home of the Grey family. Um, and Crichton later became a Bishop of Peterborough and Bishop of uh, London. But he was a good educator, also a very good historian, incidentally, of Reformation Europe, Reformation England.
2: Um,
1: And it was really under his influence that um, Gray learned to study for himself, to think for himself, to work himself into a subject, to um, organize his own thoughts and to also to prepare um, uh, for speeches. I think that was much more important than Oxford.
2: Can you explain the origins of the political alliance between Gray, Haldane, and Asquith?
1: Yes. Um, they all entered um, the House of Commons at about the same time. Um, there's a, a cohort of people who enter in 1885 or in 1886. They form a very strong, cohesive bond. Um, they are younger liberals. There are at one of the same time enthralled with Gladstone, the the grand old man of the Liberal Party, this very charismatic political uh, figure. But at the same time, they're also dismayed with his habit of launching ideological crusades on behalf of Ireland or on behalf of oppressed nationalities in the Balkans. They're much more interested in um modernizing britain and in introducing the social or educational reforms that they consider necessary for britain to be able to compete with um uh the rising powers such as germany or indeed the united states
2: would it be true to say that uh for haldane and gray the relationship was one of the heart whereas for asquith it was much more one of uh material advantage and opportunism
1: I would most definitely agree with the 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 first part of your statement Um, there was a very strong bond of friendship between Richard Haldane and uh, Edward Grey they were on first name terms which is quite unusual really for that period Uh, people usually address them each other by their surnames but this was a Richard and Edward um, sort of friendship. Um, And it it went beyond politics. They visited each other quite regularly. And when um, Haldane's uh, plans for marriage uh, fell apart, it was Grey and his wife, Dorothy Grey, who helped um, uh, Richard Haldane through a very difficult uh, facing his personal life and, you know, as you know, Haldane then in the end never married. Um, but I think it was, he, he suffered a, a serious sort of mental crisis uh, mm-hmm. in, in the early 1890s and it was Grey and, and Dorothy who who helped him uh, to get over this. Um, and um, when Haldane died in 1928, um, this was a, a, a very serious shock to was uh, Grey. This was a close friend. Um his personal and political friend um and this this might the end of a, of a very important uh period in in gray's own life now as for Asquith um this was much more a professional uh political friendship if you like um they benefited from each other equally um i think. Asquith was much more used the word opportunistic, and I I, I, I balk slightly at that um, at the use of that word. Um, I think that applies much more to Asquith than to Grey. Asquith was certainly uh, ready to sacrifice close political associates.
2: Um, oh, I was referring um, specifically just to Asquith, not to Grey's view yeah. of the relationship.
1: Okay, fair enough. Uh, it certainly applies to Asquith more. Than to um, to Grey and, and Asquith was happy to to sacrifice Haldane in 1915 when, when he thought that was convenient to do so and uh, he would have let Grey go as well if um, he hadn't judged that it would do greater damage uh, to his premiership if he let um, the foreign secretary go as well. Um, so this this was a, a, a less personal uh, friendship, but Having said that, I think Grey had a very strong bond with Margot Asquith, though so he considered her to be quite ignorant in many ways. there are some some very funny comments by Gray about margot Asquith and, and the the vitality and the ignorance of of of, of this lady
2: Why did Gladstone appoint Grey as parliamentary under-Secretary to Rosebery at the Foreign Office in eighteen ninety two
1: That's a good question, Um, and I'm not entirely certain I have a complete answer to that because when you look at Gray and his career up to that point, there was very little really to recommend him for that position. Um, His own interests lay in uh, educational reform, Irish land, the Irish land question maybe local government reform. Um, in the end, it was, um, I think, Rosebery who pressed uh, Gladstone to um, appoint Gray as parliamentary undersecretary. Um, and it has to be said that Gladstone, despite his reputation as something of a radical, liked to surround himself in cabinet and in the wider government with uh, men of aristocratic background. There were more earls and marquesses in Gladstone's cabinet than in Salisbury's conservative government, um, and Gray was someone of impeccable aristocratic lineage, a Whig of significant standing. And I suspect there was also um, perhaps, um, as it were, um, a sense on the part of Gladstone that He was the grandson of George Gray. George Gray was a great man. And why not give uh, his grandson, um, you know, the chance to prove himself uh, in a significant junior office in government? And how did he perform in that role? He performed very well, I think. Um, He was a good administrator, a hard worker. He worked himself into the subject uh, that was set before him very quickly. Um, it was not a flawless performance by any means. Um, there were always people, especially on the radical fringe of the Liberal Party, who were trying to catch him out. And on a number of occasions, they did catch him out. And uh, certainly he caused the government uh, difficulties once uh, towards the end of the uh, liberal interlude when Rosebery was prime minister, um, when he used very strong language to warn the French off the Upper Nile Valley in East Africa, which he, uh, in a sense, uh, declared to be a British uh, sphere of uh, interest. Uh, now, Gray h- hadn't actually said anything that Rosebery or the foreign secretary, then uh, the Earl of Kimberley had not said before, but um, this was a very a uh, very public and very strongly worded um, reaffirmation of Britain's position so far. And it caused great um, ructions within the government, where there were frictions between uh, the Gladstonian Little Englanders around the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir William Harcourt, uh, and the shall we say more pragmatic uh, liberals who um, focused on the needs of the empire and the imperial defense.
2: Why did Gray become so politically enamored of Rosebery? Hmm. Uh,
1: another good question. Um, Rosebery was a very strange political figure, um, and he had that rarest of qualities, which is charisma. And by its very definition, it's difficult to characterize, very difficult to explain, that holds that a public figure can have over the public and over the people in his um, immediate vicinity. Uh, He was an immensely gifted man, a great orator, also a man who had very clear ideas about uh, the future, a strong sense of Britain's place in international politics. Um, and that certainly set him as apart from other leading liberals who were competent, but ultimately perhaps a little doer, uh, or like Gladstone or, um, Harcourt were very flamboyant, but perhaps not always very realistic in their understanding of the, intricate realities of international relations. Uh, Rosebury had all these gifts and talents, but also he was a very flawed person. And I think Grey began to realize that. And so the the um, attraction that Rosemary, uh had for uh, Grey and and Helvaid and, and Asquith began to pall after a while. And here was someone who like to sulk in his tent like achilles and and uh and not come and join the fight and this was what i think the younger people like gray actually wanted uh Roseberry to do and for that Rosebury in the end wasn't uh really uh fitted
2: out on page 114-115 you write quote gray differed during his time in office in the 1890s with Rosebery." over German policy, or more specifically, how to view Berlin's diplomatic tactics under the new course." What precisely do you mean by that?
1: In the course of the 1890s, um, the tone of German diplomacy became a little more hectoring. Under Bismarck, and really also still in the early 1890s after Bismarck's dismissal uh, from office by the young Kaiser Wilhelm, um, Britain and Germany had cooperated fairly closely. Both had the same interests. They were saturated powers. They wanted to maintain the status quo in Europe against the hungry powers which were France and Russia. And so there was a, a, a commonality of interests. I would hesitate to call the uh, relationship as a friendship because it was in their carefully calculated interest, mutual interest, to maintain uh, the status quo in, in Europe. And the people in Berlin, the people in London understood that. They understood that it. Um, served both of them well to cooperate. Now, in the course of the 1890s, um, those ties loosened a little and the Germans began to look for opportunities to um, expand in overseas and the easiest way of achieving that was by um, causing difficulties between Britain and France and Britain and Russia. And in that space that would then be created, there might be opportunities for the Germans to maybe blackmail Britain into allowing Germany to acquire colonies somewhere, or if the Germans could exploit, in the worst case, a war between Britain and France to acquire um, territories at the expense of the French. So the Germans were beginning to act a little bit more aggressively, they acted more like a sort of jackal, if you like. Rosebery wanted to maintain reasonable relations with Germany. In a sense, that was also what Gray wanted, but he was much more um, alert to the fact that the Germans were um, causing much more mischief than they had done in the 1890s, and that whatever they um, proposed to do always had a poise against another power. And um, I think this was
2: what um, uh, uh, Gray, um, in a sense, objected to much more than Rosebery did. Why did Gray become a liberal imperialist? Um, Empire, of course, has become uh,
1: a morally fraud term uh, in contemporary political discourse and it seems to me that, of course, it is the job of an historian to contextualize and to place things into their appropriate contemporary context before making any kind of historical or in the moral judgment. Now, empire in the 1890s was really two things. One, it was a reality. You couldn't argue against it. Britain had an empire by hook or by crook, in a fit of absences of mind, um, and sometimes um, very deliberately, Britain had acquired um, uh, a vast global empire. And to administer that empire, to preserve it, to usage to amplify Britain's voice in international politics. That was the job of a politician. So that is one aspect to this, but empire was also more than that because empire was also a program. People like Rosebery advocated what later became known as liberal imperialism. And that was really a program of strengthening the ties between the different parts of the empire. Especially the white settler colonies, which were later to become dominions uh, uh but also um the the rest of the empire uh that is one strand the other strand is really about using the um the wealth that the empire could generate to address some of the very uh real and serious Um, social problems at home. So liberal imperialism was also a progressive, if you like, social reform platform uh, for British domestic politics that separated it from faddist radicalism on the far left of the Liberal Party and from the um, Salisburyan uh, Toryism that really had no interest in doing anything in domestic politics at all.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: How did... I'm sorry. Why was Gray so un- unenthusiastic about the Anglo-Japanese alliance of
1: 1902? Um, because he like Rosebery, for that matter, uh, or like Arthur Belfer, who was in government at the time, um, felt that there was a very serious risk that Britain might get dragged into a war in the Far East between Russia and Japan. Um, And that risk was was very real indeed. um, And it led to very heated discussions in the Conservative cabinet under Arthur Balfour uh, at the end of 1903 when um, a Russo-Japanese conflict um, hove into view Um, and uh, in the end it was um, Balfour's very skillful and subtle arguments that persuaded the cabinet that Britain could maintain uh, what was termed benevolent neutrality. But this was by no means a foregone conclusion. One has to remember, of course, that Russia was allied to France, and no one really knew the terms of the Franco-Russian alliance. So the fear that a war between Russia and Japan might bring in France, uh, which would then quite conceivably drag Britain into a regional war with global repercussions, against two global empires like Russia and France, uh, that fear was very real. And um, it was this concern, I think, that um, uh, Gray shared and that made him rather reluctant to accept the uh, need for a Japanese alliance. That said, once the alliance had become a reality and once it was then renewed in 1905 before uh, Gray himself entered office as foreign secretary. Uh, Gray accepted that this was now a reality, that um, the alliance could serve a very useful purpose in defending British interests in East Asia, whilst at the same time exercising a degree of control over Japan. Um, And therefore, Gray was very uh, keen to maintain that alliance. And indeed, it was under him, that the alliance was renewed in 1912.
2: Why did uh, Campbell Bannerman appoint Gray as foreign secretary? Not because he wanted to,
1: uh, but rather because um, Asquith, Haldane and Gray put a pistol to his head. Um, There was a plot, if you like, uh, that Gray, Haldane and Asquith hatched. They had great misgivings about Campbell Bannerman, the leader of the Liberal Party, becoming Prime Minister. Campbell Bannerman, they thought perhaps a little unfairly, was too closely associated with the radical wing of the Liberal Party. They didn't trust him to have the the right instincts on Ireland. They thought he was far too ready to give in to Irish nationalists. Uh, and they didn't think he had the right instincts on farm policy, uh, where he was perhaps, indeed instinctually, a bit of a Little Englander. And so the three of them, Grey, Haldane, and Asquith came together during the summer holidays in 1905. They met at a fishing lodge in the very north of Scotland, called Merlugas, uh on the River Fintorn, and they agreed a common course of action. This was very much Haldane's idea. Haldane also liaised with the palace because it was widely understood that King Edward VII and senior courtiers shared these suspicions about um, Campbell Bannerman. And so the common course of action was that they would resist the idea of Campbell Bannerman becoming prime minister a time when it became apparent that the Conservative government was breaking apart uh, because of internal disputes over protectionism versus free trade, um, and that they would insist that the three of them would occupy senior positions in a forthcoming Liberal government. Now, Campbell Bannerman was a much shrewder politician, much more skillful politician than any of the three realized. He bought Asquith off, offered him the treasury, um, and eventually he then agreed to make Gray a foreign secretary rather than anyone else. Haldane was left out initially, but eventually he then became secretary of state for war. He wanted to become uh, Lord Chancellor uh, really. Um, And um, so it was a combination of the internal dynamics of the liberal party, this so-called Relugas Compact and Campbell-Bannerman's dealings with both King Edward and the three parties to this pact that led to Edward Grey becoming Foreign Secretary in December 1905.
2: What were Grey's initial relations uh, to the officials at the Foreign Office?
1: Um, I think they were close, as far as one can judge. He certainly uh, struck a close rapport with Charles Harding, Sir Charles Harding, the Permanent Under Secretary um, at the Foreign Office, and by a, a curious twist of fate, uh, Harding took up his position as Permanent Under Secretary just shortly after Grey became Foreign Secretary, um, and they were of. The same generation; they had a similar outlook on international politics. And um, Charles Harding, it has to be said, was also something of a of a courtier. He knew how to um, ingratiate himself with people, and uh, perhaps uh, he fulfilled the role of a, like a sort of psychological crutch to um, for for Edward Grey because. Um, as you know, um, Gray's first weeks in office were marred by a great personal tragedy. His wife Dorothy, to whom he was deeply attached, was killed in a in a traffic accident. Her, her dog cart overturned, the horse Shaggy was thrown out of the cart and um, suffered a, a, a traumatic um head injury from which he did not recover and she died within four days and so the beginnings of gray's foreign secretaryship were also the beginnings of his his widower um uh, hood if you like
2: um
1: and um harding had the lack of helping gray along keeping him busy ensuring that he had work to do to keep his mind on on uh, his his professional duties, as it were, um, but there was a, there was a very close rapport between the two men, um, and that certainly helped. Um, Grey came into office at a time when the internal workings of the Foreign Office had just been restructured in a very significant way. Look, the department became much more professional, and officials. Um, really had a, 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 an almost institutionalized role as um, policy advisors to an extent that they didn't have before then. Now, this was the work of Gray's predecessor, Lord Lansdowne, and the previous uh, permanent under-secretary, Sir Thomas Sanderson. Um, but Gray inherited this, and he he, he, he made, uh, he, he embedded these new structures, and. He uh, made sure that they worked, he, over the course of time, he came to work very closely with a number of uh, officials, especially Sir William Tyrrell, who became his private secretary and on whom he relied greatly for the day-to-day running of the department. But Gray was very much his own man. Um, he had a very rational approach to foreign policy decision-making. He studied the dispatches and telegrams that came in, he consulted with officials and then he made up his own mind and came to a decision um, and it then left it to his officials to implement those decisions.
2: In his book, uh, Struggle for Mastering Europe, Alan Taylor says that upon uh, assuming office in December 1905, that uh, Gray, while not necessarily hostile to Germany, held much more suspicions of German policy than was the case of, say, Lansdell when he was at the Foreign Office. I take it you would not necessarily agree with this assessment?
1: Oh, uh, um, I I, I don't disagree with it. Um, And I think one has to bear in mind here that um, the context, the international context of great power politics had changed quite significantly. Uh, just at the moment when Grey came into office, so under Lansdowne, under Salisbury, before him, there was something uh, like a a properly functioning balance of power in europe. the german led triple alliance, and the franco Russian alliance balanced each other out. They were about equal strength, and that meant that Britain could keep at some distance from um, continental politics, that she could concentrate on her own imperial problems, of which there were many, um, and that she didn't really have to um, interfere steadily, persistently in European affairs. Now, in four five there is the Russo-Japanese War, and this was not uh, simply a regional conflict, but it was a conflict that had global ramifications because it eliminated Russia as a naval power, it eliminated Russia as a military power for the foreseeable future, and the Russians had serious domestic difficulties. So in terms of great power politics for the foreseeable future, Russia was not a fully functioning great power. There was no functioning balance Uh, in Europe, and that gave Germany much greater elbow room than had been the case previously. And it encouraged in Germany uh, a tendency to um, uh, throw throw their weight about a little bit. Uh, Hence the Moroccan crisis in 1905, hence also then the Balkans crisis in 1908-9 and so forth. Germany was freed from the incubus of a two-front war, which had acted as a restraint on Germany. This was no longer the case. And because of all of that, uh, Gray was uh, more suspicious of um, German policy. That didn't mean that he was anti-German, in the sense that he was driven by some inveterate hatred of, of the country. I think that is quite wrong. But he was much more suspicious, and he understood that Germany had the potential to establish uh, dominance over continental affairs. So there were several attempts by uh, the Germans to um, persuade Russia to form an alliance with Germany under german leadership and If that had come to pass, then the French would probably have tried to join that combination as well, in which case you would have had a uh, German dominated European bloc, this would have left Britain in a very precarious position of isolation, and that would not have uh, worked to Britain's advantage. So it's the circumstances that changed, and that made uh, Gray uh, and people like Charles Harding, uh, the permanent undersecretary, much more alert to the dangers of, um, that, that were in, in, implicit in some of Germany's policy maneuvers.
2: So, to your mind, that explains Gray's policy in the first Moroccan crisis.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were two dangers here. Um, one was that um, if Germany decided to force the issue and went to war with France over the future of Morocco, uh, then um, the Franco-Russian alliance would not have had any practical effect Russia, at that moment was not capable of entering into a, another major military conflict with a great power, with another great power. And this was the assessment of uh, the Germans. This was the assessment of the British, the French and the Austro-Hungarian uh, military intelligence people as well. It's quite remarkable that all of the military staffs in Europe Um, actually came to the view that Russia would be out of contention uh, really until about 1916-17. So it's important to bear that in mind. So in a a Franco-German war, this would have stayed a one-on-one, and it's more than likely that the Germans would have won, in which case they would have taken part of the um, uh, French colonial empire, maybe even acquired part of the French navy. And that would have changed the uh, constellation of the powers on the continent significantly. And again, that would not have been to Britain's advantage. That would have set in train um, very serious um, Anglo-German antagonism in the future. But equally, it was not in Britain's interest to go to war on the side of France against Germany over a colonial spat um, in northwest Africa. And Britain wasn't really in a position to wage a Continental War anyway. Uh, so Gray decided to pursue a strategy of what I call uh, constructive ambiguity. He warned off the Germans not to assume that Britain would remain neutral if Germany committed an act of aggression. And he, at the same time, encouraged the French to resist German pressure to make undue concessions to Germany over Morocco, but at the same time he also made sure that the French were not emboldened to provoke Germany into an act of aggression. So the French were encouraged to take a firm line, but not a provocative line. The Germans were deterred from Escalating this crisis further, and that allowed diplomacy to work out a solution. And in the end, um, uh, the Germans agreed to a, a conference uh, at El and it's really there that the Germans uh, play a very strong hand, very badly, and they they don't come out of this um, out of this conference with the gains that they had hoped to achieve. But Grey had secured um, a peaceful outcome. He had strengthened the ties with uh, France whilst maintaining a free hand for Britain, and he had always made it clear to the Germans: behave sensibly, peaceably, give diplomacy a chance, and there is every uh, possibility of improving Anglo-German relations.
2: In a minute, he wrote in on the 10th of June 1909. Gray states that German policy aimed at, quote, a hegemony in Europe, unquote. With what evidence did Gray derive this alleged German aim from?
1: Well, one of the problems in this period um, was we reading German intentions accurately. The Germans themselves, I think, didn't actually know what they wanted. There was a great deal of loose talk in Germany, um, both by the Kaiser and diplomats, but also in the German public, um, there was a whole series of organizations like the Pan-German League, the Navy League, etc., uh, etc. Et um, and they all talked about um, Germany's destiny to become a world power. So this was very much um, part of the, as it were, official language of the German government. Um, And it fitted, um, I don't like using this term, the zeitgeist or the spirit of the times, but this was not confined to Germany. You find this in America. You know, Brooks Adams talked about um, great power blocks dominating the 20th century. The British Empire, Russia, America, and maybe one other power um, in Europe. That could be France. The French had a sizable colonial empire. It could be Germany. Germany had the population strength, the industrial power, um, educational levels that uh, would have predestined Germany to play a significant role. But the Germans didn't have that power block, if you like, that empire, uh, and not quite the military or naval might that was uh, required for um, the task of becoming a world power. So there was a lot of loose talk about Germany's ambition to become a world power, maybe Germany's destiny to become a world power. And there were an awful lot of people who argued that uh, the rise of Little Prussia to a, the position of a European great power in the 18th century, then to the leader in Germany, then to the unifier of Germany was a, sort of an ongoing, almost teleological process that would ultimately lead to Germany becoming a world power. So, You have all of this loose talk there. British diplomats, of course, pick up on this. They report on this all the time. Um, And um, you have further evidence of Germans occasionally making suggestions to the Russians. uh, You can have an alliance under our leadership. Um, There is the effort to build up the Imperial German battle fleet. Um, There is the attempt to expand economic and political influence in the Balkans and in the Ottoman Empire. So all of these can be read as supporting evidence for the contention that Germany uh, strove to establish a position of dominance, hegemony uh, in Europe and indeed beyond. Um, The problem in many ways was that Germany lacked a consistent strategy. And Gray himself actually later, after the war came to the view that especially the kaiser was very much driven by the impressions of the moment that he was a man who talked a lot he liked to please his audience but he lacked continuity of thought and action and even before the war he likened him to a um a battleship with full steam up but there was a problem with the um, the rudder, and you just don't know where this this path this or boat is going to go. So um, there, there was a, a real um, challenge for British ministers and British officials to read Germany accurately. And ultimately, it seems to me, it reflected a deep-seated uncertainty in Germany about what it really was that the Germans wanted. By 1913-14, the Germans themselves had come to the view that they behaved rather stupidly uh, in challenging Britain um, at sea, for instance, and uh, trying to antagonize uh, France and Russia at the same time. And the foreign minister in Germany, uh, Gottlieb von Iago, um in fact, had very close relations with the British ambassador in Rome, Sir Wendell Roth, with whom he had been on friendly terms when he himself had been ambassador uh, to Italy. And Iago admitted, we messed this up, you know, we threw our weight about, but actually we didn't quite know what we wanted. We antagonized everyone. And now we have these rather strange relations in Europe. And really we know that um, this is not to Germany's interest and we need to find a way out of this. Now, by, that period, 1912, 1913, the situation in Europe has changed, of course. Russia had recovered from the uh, defeat in uh, East Asia. Russia was much stronger, both internally, but also um, Russia's finances had recovered, and Russia was about to embark on a major rearmament program. So the balance of power was coming back into um an equilibrium um in the last 24 to 18 months before the July crisis of 1914 and germany actually became much more accommodating and there was a clear indication that the naval race was in fact over by by then the Anglo-german naval race was over by then um, and the Germans cooperated with the British in the Balkan crises in 1912 and 1913, and there were very strong indications that Anglo-German relations had entered a period of détente. So it's very much the context, the wider great power context, that <coughs> excuse me, that determined the um, state of Anglo-German relations. And it's very important to bear that in mind. And I think Gray himself always appreciated that. Um, much more, in fact, than many uh, later historians did who criticized Gray for his handling of foreign affairs.
2: Uh, in the book, you maintain, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, Gray endeavored in the July crisis to exercise equal pressure on both the uh, Berlin and uh, via Berlin on Vienna, as well as Petersburg. But there is a minute by Crow on the 25th of July, which I'm quite sure you're familiar with, in which he states, quote, the moment has passed when it might have been possible to enlist French support in an effort to hold back Russia, unquote. Uh, Doesn't that seem to indicate that um, that while there was pressure being exercised in, in Berlin or on Berlin, and, and therefore from Berlin to Vienna, there was not equal amount of pressure being exercised uh, directly um, on Petersburg or indirectly via Paris? Um,
1: yes and no. Um, what Gray certainly tried to do was to continue the strategy that had worked reasonably well in previous crises, the true Moroccan crises, previous Balkan crises. Um, it's also important to bear in mind that Gray and the Foreign Office were very much under the impression of this Anglo German detente that had gained ground uh, in 1913 1940. And the German ambassador in London, Prince Lichnowsky, um, certainly said all the right things. Yes, we must cooperate with Britain. We must ensure that this crisis triggered by the assassination of the Austro Hungarian Archduke. Uh, does not escalate into a war between Austria-Hungary and Russia. Um, Gray offered um, Berlin the opportunity to mediate. Gray uh, also made it clear to the Germans that, again, if Germany forced the issue, then the Germans could not rely on Britain remaining outside uh, this conflict. And he had made this statement several times to uh, Lichnowsky since the ambassador took up his position in 1912. In fact, there is a dispatch from Lichnowsky to his superiors in Berlin about a month. In fact, I think it's exactly a month before the assassination uh, in Sarajevo, in which they discussed this hypothetical case of a European war. And Lichnowsky said, yes, I understand. Uh, You may support, for bounds of power reasons, you may support, France and Russia in the event of such a war. And this was reported back to Berlin and Berlin understood this uh, quite clearly. The problem with putting pressure on um, France and Russia was this. Britain was not allied to either of those two powers. Britain had a colonial understanding with France, the Entente of 1904. This was essentially a tidying up operation, mopping up outstanding colonial disputes between the two countries. Now, admittedly, since the Moroccan crisis of 1905, the Entente had hardened into something more than just a colonial understanding, but it was well short of an alliance, and that was always understood that Britain had a free hand, but she was not committed to uh, France. There was no automaticity. So putting pressure on the French um, would have elicited, elicited an immediate response, which would have been, okay, we can restrain Russia, but what will, he, will you give us in return? Would you agree to converting the entente into a fully fledged continental alliance with us and with Russia? Um, and that was always quite clear and and, and previous, Exchanges with the French and the Russians had always made that quite clear. Um, And it was for that reason that Gray was very reluctant to put too much pressure on France and Russia. The problem was also, in many ways, that French policymaking during the July crisis was somewhat confused. The government was actually out of Paris for a significant period of time. There were uh, frictions between the president, Raymond Poincare, and the prime minister, René Viviani. Um, and they were all pulling in the same direction. And what the British never understood until very late in the day was that the French, in fact, encouraged the Russians to take a much harder line, not to give in to Austro-German pressure uh, in the July crisis. And that, in fact, they were committed almost come what may to uh, Russia uh, um, in, in, over the Balkans. Where where Grey I think misjudged the situation was that he uh, he didn't reach out to Austria Hungary he didn't understand that Austria actually had a, a a fair degree of if you like negative leverage over Berlin the assumption always was that Germany was the dominant force in the Austro German Alliance and that if you put significant pressure or offered significant inducement to Berlin. Uh, then Berlin would reign in Vienna because Vienna was just the lap of of Berlin. Now, that was actually a, a misreading of the situation. Um, uh, Vienna had um, much more leverage be- over Berlin because um, there was a great fear in Germany that Austro-Hungary was a declining power, that the internal ethnic um, Struggles within this vast, sprawling, multi-ethnic empire would ultimately break this empire apart, just as the Ottoman Empire had just broken apart, and then Germany would be left on her own, isolated and exposed to Franco-German, sorry, Franco-Russian uh, pressure, and that really made the Germans much more determined to support Austria-Hungary in um, in July 1914. Um, and the British didn't, I think, fully appreciate it, appreciated that Gray was cognizant. He understood that um, Austria-Hungary faced tremendous internal pressures. And in fact, he had instituted uh, a kind of an early warning system. The embassy in Vienna had to report on a fortnightly basis uh, from all corners of the Austrian empire. Um, on the internal developments um, within the Habsburg lands. Uh, Gray wanted to have some sort of early warning system, but I think he feared that the, um, that Austria-Hungary would simply implode when the old emperor, Franz joseph uh, would die. And he was very old. He was in his mid eighties by then, uh, and he was not a, a well man. So there was an inevitable uh, sort of biological end to, um, to to the Franci- Francisco Josephinian uh, period. Uh, what Gray and the embassy in Vienna did not understand and the embassy in Berlin did not understand was that the Austrians um, could exercise this kind of negative power over German decision-making. Uh, so if, if Gray had offered the Austrians some mediation mechanism uh, that would have allowed Austria to, gain some uh, redress for her grievances against Serbia directly, Um, there might have been a better chance of settling the July crisis without uh, it escalating into a war. But this, I think he didn't understand. In the end, I don't think anyone else really understood this. The Germans didn't really understand it. They were dragged into this. And as Bettmann holweg famously said, when he was asked, how did it all happen? He said, my God, how do I know? It just happened.
2: Could it not be argued that the central failure of Grey's policy in the July crisis was that when the European balance shifted against Germany after 1911, as per David Stevenson's book *Armaments mm. and the Coming of War in Europe*, in which um, he noted and which, if you read the diplomatic documents as I'm sure you have, is widely acknowledged in Europe that Germany was on the losing end of the arms race with Russia and France that Gray did not shift his policy to take this factor, meaning the change in the balance of power when he conducted the diplomacy of the July crisis?
1: Mm. Yeah, very good question. Um, I don't agree with that um, for two reasons. One, um, the shift after 1911, 1912 was not a sudden one, but a gradual one, so this is a process. And certainly by 1914, I think Germany still had the edge slightly. Uh, things would change once the great program in Russia got underway, and that was scheduled to start in the autumn of 1914. After that, it would, I think, have been very difficult for Germany um, to win any kind of war uh, against France and uh, Russia. Um, so that was one thing. The second point, why I disagree with that, is great that Grey did factor this into account. And in fact, he was looking for ways of improving Anglo-German relations. Hence his um, determination never to let um, fall by the wayside any kind of Anglo-German naval agreement. So there were several attempts. To come to um, an arms limitations uh, kind of framework agreement for what we would now call arms limitations, uh, an arms limitations regime uh, at sea, that in the end didn't work because of complications on the German side, and as I said, the Germans often didn't know themselves what they wanted. Um, but he pursued, pursued the idea of at least a kind of confidence-building agreement uh, further, and by Um, 1913-14, he was exploring um, further avenues of strengthening Anglo-German relations. I talked about um, this in the book and elsewhere. In previous publications, there were plans to send his private secretary, uh, William Tyrrell, to Germany incognito to meet with the German foreign minister uh, in the summer of 1914 to explore ways in which anglo german relations could be improved properly and placed on a firmer, friendlier footing. And again, it's the European context that matters here because it was clearly understood by Gray and by uh, senior people in the Foreign Office that the balance of power was coming back into an equilibrium, that by 1915, the Anglo-Russian Convention over Persia would have to be renegotiated. Now that came, the original convention was agreed in 1907 at a time when Russia was still very weak and Russia um, effectively needed to, time to recuperate. And a weak Russia was always uh, uh, more biddable uh, when it came to international diplomacy. One only sense, that hasn't changed until the present day. Um, a strengthened Russia, a stronger Russia, was far more difficult to deal with, and the internal discussions uh, in 1930-1940 in London made it quite clear that actually the British had nothing to offer to the Russians when it came to renewing the agreement. And simply to renew the agreement without actually renegotiating it made no sense. So it's against this backdrop that Gray was willing to explore The possibility of some agreement with Germany that would, or talks with Germany that would lead to improved relations, perhaps in anticipation of much more distant and looser ties between Britain and Russia, Mm. and therefore by implication with France in 1915 or in 1960, on the assumption, of course, that nothing untoward was going to happen. Now, William Tyrrell was supposed to, to visit Germany, this was being discussed in between Tyrrell and his contacts in Germany throughout the spring of 1914. Then there is the um, the last flowering of the Home Rule crisis and he can't uh, leave. And then we end the July crisis and other things intervene and um, by the time he was supposed to visit Germany um, uh, in August 1914, well, other things have happened and this is no longer uh, a practicable proposition. But it's quite clear that um, Gray and his closest advisers appreciated this shift in the balance of power and that they were preparing to position British foreign policy uh, to readjust at the moment when the balance of power was more or less back in a in a sort of proper and stable equilibrium.
2: So in essence, your argument is that uh, Grey recognised the shift, and he was waiting for that shift to become more played out uh, subsequently, so that by 1915, 1916, there was a very good possibility. Of uh, Britain balancing itself against, to some extent, the Franco-Russian un, um, alliance. That
1: that is that is correct. Um, in a sense, the um, the July crisis of nineteen fourteen came at the wrong time. Uh, I you know I'm not a betting man, but if I were, uh, and one could sort of place retrospective bets, had the. Uh, uh, crisis of the Sarajevo crisis happened a year or two years later I'm not sure that Britain would have joined the war.
2: How would you rate Gray's record overall would you say that he deserves inclusion in the pantheon of great foreign secretaries a la Salisbury, Castlereagh, Canning and Palmerston?
1: Um, yes I would um, he had a very good very subtle sense of the realities of international politics. He also understood the strengths of British power, but also its limitations. And he understood that a British foreign minister or prime minister on his own could not shape the course of European politics. Castlereagh understood that. Salisbury understood that uh, Armstrong, perhaps less <laughs> um, yeah. later ones like Bevin, for instance, I think understood that too. So um, I think he he certainly falls into that category. What Gray did not enjoy was a favourable um, international environment. Salisbury, in mean, many ways, was a very clever. Um, Intelligent, skilled foreign secretary, but it played to his advantage that there was a functioning balance of power in Europe. And that meant that um, not only were the the alliance blocs more or less stable and equal in power, but it also meant that the uh, differences between the various European great powers were always greater than their differences with Great Britain. And that meant that Salisbury had the kind of negrum, if you like, or the freedom of manoeuvre um, that he needed to um, protect British interests to avoid um, entering into any kind of entangling commitments to any one of those European great powers. During Grey's time in office, slightly preceding it and then during his whole time in office, there was no functioning balance of power. And that meant British foreign policy had to use very different tools, had to cleave closer to all the slightly weaker side um, amongst the European great powers. And so there was a, a greater degree of involvement in uh, European affairs than um, would have been necessary in, in its ultimate time.
2: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Hmm.
1: Um, I think the importance of character and judgment. Um, I don't think Gray was a, a great intellectual. I mean, he was not a stupid man, um, and, but he had the right sort of judgment. He knew what was possible. He knew how. Uh, the other countries operated, he knew what made them tick, he understood their interests, he understood Britain's interests, and the interests of the British Empire, um, and um, he understood what judgment calls he had to make in order to, to balance these, these different competing interests out. And character, I think, is also important because He was a fairly calm and rational um, person when it came to politics. He's very structured. He was very keen on having information available and making um, a, a decision on the basis of the available information before him. He also understood that you had to decide speedily, so you would never have a complete set of data in front of you, before you could make a decision, he understood that this is not a um, not a science, as it were, but, but an art, um, and that decisions had to be made at some point, and that they had to be made at the right point. Um, and I think Grey had those those um, characteristics, uh, mm. and I think and a politician. Uh, needs to have those, or she needs to have these, these skills, these qualities, uh, in order to be great politicians. Whether Gray would have been able to survive in the kind of incessant 24 uh, 7, high pressure environment of modern politics, I don't know. It would be an interesting um, piece of speculation to imagine him being placed in. I don't know, the State Department today or the Foreign Office today, um, with different challenges and so on. Uh, I don't know how he would have coped, but uh, I'd like to think that he would have had the, the, the judgment, the intellectual equipment, and the character to cope with the, the high-pressure uh, environment of, of today's politics.
2: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Aute, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Aute. Thank you. My pleasure. Great to talk to you.